Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Welcome to this episode of the Bike Radar Podcast, where we're going to try and answer the question, are current tech trends taking bikes in the right direction? But before we do that, let's introduce you to today's guests. Now, I'm joined by Luke Marshall, who's one of our tech writers, Tom Marvin, who's Bike Radar and MBUK's senior technical editor, and Tom Law, who is our YouTube channel MTB video presenter. I'm Alex Evans, also one of Bike Radar's senior technical editors. Luke, how are you and what have you been up to? Yeah, I'm all good, thanks. Um, lately, I've been riding a few new bikes for upcoming e-bike supplement for MBUK and for some first rides in the magazine as well. So I've been on the latest Canyon Strive On, um, which has been good fun. Um, I have the regular normal Canyon Strive for my long-term bike, so it's been uh, fun to compare the two. Um, one with the e-bike motor and one just on its own and then also been putting a bit of time on the scott genius st 910 so they're kind of super trail version of their uh trail bike which has also been a yeah a, a good fun and capable bike to start shredding around the slopping yeah sounds great uh tom marvin because we've got two toms tom l and tom m 
Just try not to confuse things. Tom M, how how are you? I'm all right, thank you. Well, um, at the moment, I am uh, getting my hands nice and cold and wet testing, or rather, I'm not getting my hands nice and cold and wet because I'm testing winter gloves for mountain biking, which, uh, yeah, I'm doing the shower test tomorrow where I uh, stick my hands in the shower for uh, increasingly long periods of time to see how long it takes for my hands to get damp. And then okay. I'm going to be pulling my hands out and then putting them back in to see how easy it is to get mm. slightly damp hands in and out of a glove. Because actually, there's nothing more annoying than gloves that are bad at that. Yeah, that's one of the things with a, a glove with a liner is you pull the liner out when you pull your hand out and then your world's just ended. I do I do sort of think it's, it's 2023, right? Coming up 2024 and we still haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's so annoying. There is one pair of gloves that may or may not make it into my test where the liner pulls out. Oh dear. Um, have you are you gonna augment your shower test by adding in some fridge freezer action? Just to really, <laughs> really up the ante and the chill blains. Well, um my early morning commutes to and from the office are pretty good for actually testing the warmth of, of the gloves because it's although like the days are quite nice at the moment, the actual rides in in the morning can still be like low single figures. Um, uh, so yeah, so I'm, I'm doing little commutes and then obviously mountain biking with the gloves to sort of see how they warm up and also like the bar feel, like a big thick insulated glove kills your bar feel. And I really find that distracting. Uh, and then the shower test for, for waterproofing, uh, and then obviously having one glove on one hand and a different glove on the other hand to back to back. Which looks great. Nothing if not dedicated to the cause. Yeah, nothing if not. <laughs> uh, Tom Tom Law, how, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, mate. Yeah, really good, thank you. And uh, have you been up to anything exciting recently? So I've been in our video studio talking about MTB upgrades, so those that you should make to your bike and those that you really, really shouldn't, like all the titanium bolts that I insist on putting all over my transition. So don't buy titanium bolts, folks. But yeah, upgrades you should do, like suspension upgrades, tyre upgrades, all that sort of stuff. Nice. What What do you think is your top upgrade? It's got to be tyres. They're the one tires. thing that come into contact with the ground, and a lot of bikes come with really rubbish tyres out of the box. Bike manufacturers are getting better at that kind of thing. But yeah, definitely, spunk your money on some tyres. It's a good way to go. Agreed. I think we're all that's the unanimous unanimous uh, stand by you there. We I think we all agreed with that one. We do sometimes do podcasts on that topic, and uh, they're usually quite short because yeah. <laughs> when you're like, "Oh, let's do one where we each pick an upgrade," and everyone's like, "Well, we all just want to put decent tires on." Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, take, take note. Uh, actually, in in today's test session, I got a puncture, so uh, better tires would have certainly certainly helped that. What what casing um, did you have on? Well, let's not talk about that. I just oh. had a had an exo exo casing on a trail bike, okay. um, so it's kind of not really a surprise. But you know, these things happen, don't they? They do um, to yeah. you quite frequently. Yeah, well, yeah, that's very true. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. cool. Okay, so um, without further ado, that question I said at the beginning of the podcast: Are current tech trends taking bikes in the right direction? So it's quite a big question. We recently did a headliners bike test where we had six bikes from varying disciplines. Now, the reason why we pick these bikes, sometimes they're just great. Other times they're really indicative of trends in the industry in general um, and of kind of things to come and where we see the bike industry going. Hopefully today we're going to be able to answer some questions for you. I'm going to put Luke on the spot because Luke tested the 
its new Trek Slash, which is a high pivot enduro bike. I did. I did. <laughs> I, I was waiting for a question, then I was like, oh, no, he's going to ask me a question. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I did it. That's why I was really nice to you. And uh, no, no questions asked, Luke. No questions. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I rode the Trek Slash. Um, I guess Trek are probably the first say, of the major brands. I mean, there's lots of brands that have been producing high pivot bikes for a few years now. But I guess of the of the big few out there, Trek Specialized Giant, for example, that have put a high pivot on their enduro bike. Um, and, and Trek do have a history of high pivots. Obviously, the Session Downhill bike runs one, and and they said they play they had played around with a few iterations of the slash before settling on this one they've done now. Um, and I kind of it's interesting to say that high pivots are probably here to stay as a trend. I don't think they're gonna disappear anytime soon. And it's interesting that say such a brand as Trek has, has decided to do this to their enduro bike, considering how pedal friendly enduro needs to be still, you know. They argued a lot of the time you get uh, some assistance at the top of the hill, but for most riders going out for most weekends on a bike ride, there isn't a lift assistance. You know, I mean, you're gonna pedal your way to the top whenever we go out riding. And up your way out, you've got some big hills, but there's no no chairlift yet. Not so, yet. I'm so, crossing my fingers. Yeah. So uh so it's it's good to see that you know Trek have spent a lot of time developing how well this bike pedals. Um and I think other brands out there can take learnings from this as well. It probably is the best pedaling high pivot bike I've ridden. I recently rode the Da Vinci Chainsaw, which was it's uh again a 170 mil front rear um park bike um you can have a 29 or mixed wheel setup so it's very similar to the trek on paper but they ride completely differently the da vinci is like super plush very much for ripping the descents hasn't given so much uh dedication to the climbs as well as where trek have they've made a, a bike that pedals well so it, they've proved it can be done and i think other brands might take their learnings on board and i think we might see or i don't think high pivot bikes as a trend is uh is just a phase i think it's gonna hang around for a while and uh, and it certainly has its place so it's uh it's cool to see i was chatting to a product manager recently who uh they're in the development phases of their next version of their current enduro bike um and i was chatting to them a, a couple it was only a couple of days after the slash was launched and they were saying that they were interested because when they've been sort of looking at their new enduro bike they sort of had three options do they like do they use a flex stay type suspension system like you know a lot of xc and trail bikes are and an increasing number of enduro bikes are do they use like a either a, a four pivot whether that's a you know a horse link or a, a faux a faux pivot you know like a linkage driven single pivot or do they go for um, a high pivot thing and they're saying that seeing trek do the high pivot thing sort of to them made them realize that actually you know it was a big brand i was chatting to that you know they could actually do high pivot because they've seen obviously previously it's always been kind of boutique brands like forbidden or deviate who have done these um so they were sort of quite interested to see trek doing it and it made them think actually you know we have one you know on our prototype list you know, maybe maybe we should consider it again mm. and i wonder if um you know it may be in trek's range if the fuel EX is going to be, you know, in its next iteration cycle, whether that will go to a high pivot. Like an even shorter tra- travel version. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's my big question. We've seen like 
pretty much every technology that's come through downhill has filtered down, you know, like geometry, you know, head angles of like 66 degrees on cross-country race bikes, which is what downhill bikes for like 10, 15 years ago had. See it with the same with enduro bikes. Are we going to see like that progression sort of slowly going down the line all the way to trailing NXC bikes? It's an interesting one. I'm, I've, I've yet to ride a high pivot for any sort of period of time, so I can't really comment all that much really, but definitely be interested to see if they can sort out the friction issues of some some of the bikes. I mean, how did you find it, Luke, in terms of friction, the slash? Did you notice it at all with the extra idler on there? Uh, no, very impressive. So when, yeah, climbing, um, really hard to notice. Uh, the easiest way, I think, is if you just bend the pedals backwards, you know, so just have the bike stationary, kick the pedals around and see how many rotations of the cranks backwards you can get from it. And uh, on high pivot bikes I have tested before, you're, you're lucky to get more than half a crank of the pedals, if you know what I mean, half a rotation. But on the trick, it just whizzed around, you know, two, two and a half times. So fair play to them. There's just on that very unscientific test. It's uh, it's not causing a significant issue. Um, definitely less than other bikes I've done that to. So no, like I say, it climbs very well. I think Trek have oh, was a prioritized pedaling on that bike quite heavily through the shock tune and the components on it as such. Um, so it, it it does when you're on it, it's it's not a drag or a chore compared to bikes it's pitted against. And there's definite advantages to the high pivot system. I recently tested the DV8 Highlander 2, which is 145 mil travel. Um, borderline trail bike basically you know it's kind of spans the categories it's an all mountain bike um and it felt like it had way more travel than it than it did so you know you put a 130 120 mil travel um high pivot system on a short travel you know as essentially a short travel trail bike you're going to give yourself a f- bike that feels like it has more travel than it actually does um so free speed free control free fun whatever it is um and if brands are, you know, looking at Trek for inspiration in terms of how to reduce idler wheel uh, friction, drivetrain friction, then where's the, where's the disadvantages? Yeah, no, I think it's a it's a trend that's going to be be around. I think it's only going to get better and better as more brands figure out how to optimize both up and downhill performance with it. Hmm. Interesting. That's cool. So, kind of leads me on talking about trail bikes and stuff. Tom Marvin. Mm. Short travel bikes are the rider's choice. Yeah. I've, I'm a, a long-time proponent that uh, it's what you do with it rather than what you have that really matters. And I believe that actually short travel bikes have a lot to bring to the world of mountain biking. And you shouldn't be shy about rolling around on 120 or 130 mil of travel instead of floating around on 170 or 180 mil of skill compensation like Luke Ooh. likes to do all the time. Ooh, <laughs> shots fired. Should everyone be riding hardtails then? We should all be on rigids. Honestly. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to go Andy. into it too much, but I love hardtails so much. We had a good oh, yeah. day out of the hardtails the other day, didn't we, Tom? Absolutely. Uh, we did. We did. Um, I, well, I'm, I, I'm, go on. I even smiled once, I think. I think you might have done, yeah. <laughs> I had a really good time. I've got a... Um, a test my test mule at the moment is a is a hardtail. Uh and I swear oh well, I mean the Marin Elroy, Marin Elroy that we've talked about many times on this Have podcast. <laughs> I still believe it's the fastest bike I've ever ridden. So 
Um, but yeah, no. Um, short travel bikes um, are here to stay. Uh, short travel bikes are actually the bikes that many people kind of should kind of be riding. Like, why why not? Um, I think what's what I mean by that really is that what's more important to how good a bike is is not how much travel it has, but how well the travel is delivered and how good the geometry of the bike is. So you can have a bike that maybe isn't sort of, you know, dripping in travel, you know, but still can handle technical terrain at speed so long as that travel is doled out in a you know basically in a progressive fashion that doesn't leave you banging off the end of its bump stops and doesn't ramp up super quickly towards the end giving that impression of harshness like a nice progressive leverage curve all the way through the travel so it eases into the latter stroke of its suspension paired with a fork that matches the rear end in terms of its progression as well so you've got a really balanced feel will still give you plenty of control um, in high speed big hit situations and if that's backed up with geometry that has you know the current trend for long low slack i think is a good thing and, and I, f I find it very hard to argue against that if you pair those two things together where you've got a long reach that gives you plenty of stability along with you know a, seat, a steep seat tube that is really nice for pedaling on and then a head angle that kind of matches vaguely what you want to be doing with that bike because i don't necessarily think like short travel bikes have to have super slack head angles but i think when you pair it with a long reach you get that stability and you can still have the agility you want from arguably a slightly tighter head angle um yeah i, I think those two things combined are what defines a bike's capability almost as much as a suspension travel now obviously like that's a broad brush statement and i'm not advocating the likes of uh, of you know nina hoffman to start riding down val di sole on a 120mm bike there are obvious bracketings within that but i think tra trail bikes there's nothing wrong with you know having your trail bike at 120 130 140 mil of travel i don't think you have to inflate that to 160 170 to believe that you've got a really capable trail bike yeah and historically people have been dramatically overbiked for their scenario which you know on the one hand you can totally understand say you've only got the money to buy one bike and you go to the alps for a holiday or you know to somewhere with gnarlier terrain fort william in scotland you know dovey in in wales maybe you're going to really appreciate having that extra travel and if that's kind of the the jewel in your mountain biking crown that you know chance to go on holiday to visit somewhere new you want the perfect tool for the job but for 95 percent of the time you know riding your your average bridleway your average trail center whatever it may be maybe overbiked. yeah i mean that that argument of like, you know, most people being overbiked because they want that one week of the year where they're not overbiked. You know, that's a, a totally fine argument and a totally fine sort of attitude to take. And I'm never going to say to someone, "Oh, you're you're silly. You've bought the wrong bike." But I think like I would rather consider the 95% of my rides and make sure that I'm on like in inverted commas the right bike or the bike that's maybe most appropriate for that, and then. You know, if you have got a bike that has really progressive, decent suspension and, and great geometry, and maybe you swap the tires to something a bit more big and aggressive, it's still going to perform pretty well on those bigger weeks when you take it abroad without having to slug it around the rest of the year. Mm. There's also an element, and this is sort of, I know we've, we've talked about this a couple of times, and there is a disagreement across the team on, on this. Um, I can see Luke's eyes glaring at me, but like, I like a bike that feels underbiked. Like, when you know, I ride a mountain bike to have get a bit of an adrenaline pumping through my system, right? And 
if I'm on like a really big, super capable bike and I'm riding at Tom Marvin speeds down a track, right? That bike is like, it's shrugging its shoulders. You're like, oh, well, come on, get on with it. You know, like, come on, it's, it's getting a bit bored, right? If I ride a short travel bike at Tom Marvin speeds down a track, it's probably not being like, oh my God, but it's probably thinking, all oh, right, you know, okay. Like, because getting that bike closer to its performance envelope makes the ride more exciting and more fun. And I find that much easier to do or it's more frequent to do on a short travel bike. So actually, I end up riding the same tracks, which I'd ride anyway, on a short travel bike and coming out of the bottom more stoked and more terrified and more excited than I do when I'm on a big capable bike that really should be doing, you know, going double the speed. So I get a bigger hit in terms of adrenaline out of those smaller short travel bikes. It's more fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Tom on that one. I just don't have the skill to make a big bike work for me, you know, and I just like that feeling being close to the edge. It's like being in a go-kart, you know, you could do 30 miles an hour in a go-kart and it feels absolutely terrifying. You do 30 miles an hour in a car and it's well, it's nothing, is it? You know, it's it's one of those things, you know. So for me, I'm I'm fully with Tom on that. I think a shorter travel bike for for someone like me who's not as skilled, yeah, a short travel bike just feels feels better. So yeah, I'd say don't don't shy away from your short travel bikes. Don't look at the spec sheet and think, oh, I need 170 mil for doing what I do. Like, consider, consider the 130 mil bike. Mm. Yeah, great. That's really, really, uh, really, really insightful. It's really you totally disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I, let, let's not let's not ramble on too long. But uh, one of my previous MBUK long term test bikes was Orange's. Um, stage four i believe it was called mm. which was their first 29er um 100 mil travel trail bike and i thought i was the absolute don going for this thing i was like 100 mil i can ride it anywhere it's got 29 wheels i'm invincible it wasn't enough bike <laughs> like i i got out of my depth very very quickly and, you know, this was quite a while ago now. This was when I was MBK's features editor, so, you know, a fair, fair few years ago. And geometry has changed a lot since then. Um, but, my God, I was out of my depth on that thing. And I spent a lot of my time wishing for more travel um, and better suspension. But maybe, you know, had it had your, your Merida 120s linkage, um, maybe it would have been better. Maybe. Okay, well... Talking about geometry, Tom Law, has the geometry arms race halted? Yeah, so that's my argument in terms of the headliner test is that, yeah, I would argue say it has. We had that massive era of progression in the early 2010s where geometry just went a bit wild, really. Everything had been fairly static for, for a long time. You know, we bike started really slack back in the days of the, you know, the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Clunkers. clunkers yeah that's it yeah clunkers sort of back in the day and then bikes went you know sort of really steep stems got really long handlebars got really narrow and it's gone completely the other way now you know stems are a lot shorter bars are a lot wider head angles are slacker but we do seem to be reaching a kind of a plateau you know reaches are staying fairly static from year on year each bike's maybe getting one or two millimeters longer or perhaps a little bit shorter in some cases so for me i think we've kind of reached that that peak now and I don't really see what benefit going too much slacker would bring to anybody I think some XE bikes we might still see a little bit of progression but it's not anything out of the ordinary I don't think we're going to be seeing bikes with 
60 or sub 60 degree head angles in the next two or three years. And I don't think we're going to see bikes with 85 degree steep seat angles either or 530 mil reaches on a, on a size large. Then we pretty much hit a sweet spot. I don't see there being any sort of progression on that, guys. I mean, I don't know what, what you guys think of it. I think um, I think it's an interesting topic. I do wonder if the reason why geometry is currently halting is because there's an imbalance between the figures. So, you know, traditionally chainstays have been around 440, 445 millimeters. And that's kind of where everyone seems to be stopping at now. But as a ratio to the front of the bike, there's still a huge imbalance there. And it makes your weight effectively much more rearward than than it, it probably should be. You want to be in the center of the bike. So I do wonder if chainstays were to grow a little bit more, so could then head angles again. And basically what we're doing is we're uh, improving the ratio of front to back, but also making the bike more stable um, at the same time. So improving that stability. And everyone goes, well, then it's not going to be nimble to ride around corners. Um, you lower the bottom bracket to, to counteract that. So you make the bike easier to lean over. Um, so suddenly, you know, you've got the stability of the length, the length of the chainstay in the front and the head angle, but you've also made it super low. I don't know. Maybe I'm really wrong. And I know uh, fellow ex-journalist, but well, I'm not an ex-journalist. I'm not even a journalist, to be completely honest with you. <laughs> 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 we'll joke about that. Uh, fellow bike tester, Paul Aston, um, has gone kind of opposite with that. He thinks the bottom bracket should be higher. Uh, bikes should be longer, but everything should be higher. Um, so I don't know in answer to to you, Tom. I, I think that for the time being, you're bang on the money. They've definitely, definitely paused. There's no denying that. But whether or not we've reached peak geometry as your, you know, video, as as the video with, is it, was it Will that did that? Yeah, video? Will's done the video. Yeah, yeah, Will did the video. I think that maybe there's still some room for improvement there. Yeah, it's interesting on the bottom bracket because I, I would be very much on your lines of like, oh, you know, you want a really low bottom bracket, short crank arms. But the Norco that I rode in this headliners test has got a 348 mil bottom bracket height, which for a trail bike these days, like that's high. You know, for an enduro bike, that might be on the normaler end of the spectrum. But for a 130 mil trail bike, that seems quite high. I mean, I don't know what White's T140 is or your Marie Delonte Maton, but I but dare say it's probably a fair bit lower than that. So for me, like, yeah, I'm not really sure whether the bottom bracket height would affect it too much. I know Paul's been experimenting with bottom bracket heights and Chris Porter, who's another geometry aficionado, is always messing about with BB heights and what have you. But I was definitely in the, the lower camp for BBs. But yeah, that Norco corner is just fine, even with that relatively high sort of bottom bracket. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see how it develops over the next couple of years. I throw my hat in, I think, the lower... Yeah, keep going lower and slacker bikes. I'm very fortunate that I'm quite small, so I've never not been able to find a bike big enough. Um, but I think you don't have to go much longer these days, but you can definitely go lower and slacker. Like the Strive, my Enduro bike I've got for a long term, got a 63-degree head angle, and the bottom bracket is like a, I can't remember if it's a 36 or a 39 mil bottom bracket drop behind the, like under the axles. It's super low for a 170 or 160 mil Enduro bike. But um, but that thing is bucket loads of confidence in the corners. You now, considering how how slack it is and how aggressive it is, you know, it's uh, it's really sure-footed and and, and pretty nimble as well. So I'm uh, I'm for low and slack, but we don't have to keep stretching them out. But then I'm only a short rider, so 
never had an issue. Mm, contentious topic. Mm, very. Yeah, cool. Okay. What's uh, what's your contentious topic uh, for discussion today, Al? Well, it's it's like a twofold, it's a bit of a twofold on this one. The the main question is, does motor output and battery capacity really matter? So lightweight e-bikes and full power e-bikes, they kind of they kind of coexist in the market, but they're sort of the yin to each other's yang. Um they're kind of a bit strange. You see people buzzing around enduro star riding with SLE bikes. Um you know, the, the standout one there being specialized Kinevo SL. Um, but then you also see the same people on full power ones. And there's a real, there's a bit of kind of a disconnect um, between the two types of riding. It's it's just really tricky because people on, on SLE bikes, they can't necessarily keep up with full power ones, but they've got the advantages of lower weight on the downhills. And it's like, where is this all going? You know, should should e-bikes get lighter with less power or should they try and maintain that perfect weight where they've got so much momentum smoothness control with the bigger power motor the bigger batteries um you know it's kind of a it's kind of a weird thing in flux at the moment and my argument is that with technology improving you're basically going to see a convergence of the sle bikes and the full power ones and in the future, I think that you're going to struggle to have a differentiation between the two. Um, I, I think that full power e-bikes will get lighter and SLE bikes will get more powerful. And suddenly they become the same thing where people no longer need to choose one or the other. Yeah, it's having your cake you and eating it, isn't it? But as SLE bikes get more powerful, do you think they get lighter as well as the same reasons that the full power e-bikes get? lighter battery technology changes yeah potentially um but then yeah i i don't know i mean it, it, it they've yeah almost certainly but then where do you kind of what are you then after like are you after a normal bike that gives you assistance but then doesn't have any of the advantages of an e-bike on the descents for example you know the extra traction the smoother suspension more grip control potentially um, you know, are you suddenly getting to a point where, okay, you can get to the top of the hill quicker, but actually you're not necessarily giving yourself any more advantages? Yeah, that sounds like a pretty good advantage. I'd, I'd take that one. If, Would you? Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So I mean, said, mate... here's your Endura bike to ride back down the hill, but you're going to get to the top with half the effort in half the time. Oh, yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure there are I'm sure there are purists who absolutely detest e-bikes shouting at the screen right now. I'm and sure I seem to are. be I seem to be somewhere in the middle where actually I, I personally quite enjoy the I quite enjoy the exercise of the of the normal bike, but also, you know, the outright hooliganism assistance of a of an e-bike. Um you know, it's it's kind of like a bit of a tricky balance. If I can get to the top of a hill eating a Kit Kat, I'm a happy man. <laughs> <laughs> As long as my bike weighs the same as my current bike on the way back down, and you know, yeah. So obviously, with with maybe those potential improvements in technology, do do you think it's going to get cheaper as well, or or do you think that you know we're still going to be in a world where the most expensive Scott Lumen is thirteen thousand seven hundred pounds? I don't think we'll ever get to the point where there won't be super high expensive bikes because they fill a particular niche in a particular role. Like you know, these 
you know, halo bikes that cost 13, 14, 15 grand, they don't sell, I mean, they probably sell all of them, but they don't sell many of them. And they're there for a specific purpose, which is to highlight the fact that this model exists to generate headlines. They're as much a marketing thing as they are a commercial endeavor. So we're always going to see really expensive bikes because people talk about them and therefore people think, oh, the Scott Lumen, that's the 13 grand one. Oh, my God. And then like, oh, but they've got a six grand one. And oh, that looks quite good. I might, I might get that. Like that's mm. how it works. So we're always going to have those. But I think the interesting thing will be how far down the technology trickles. And, you know, obviously there's that Vitus Earscarp, uh, sorry, Emethic that you, that you tested. You know, effectively, you can get them sub four grand, you know, as an RRP, like, that really wasn't possible a few years ago to get a super capable, high-powered, you know, large-capacity e-bike anywhere close to that. So this whole trickle-down tech that everyone sort of talks about is a thing, and it does exist. But we're also seeing a trickle-up tech in terms of pricing, which, you know, riles many people up, but it's it feels like a it's a distraction. So do, do you think what will happen in the future is that they'll put software inhibitors on max power for example because you know i think we're all arguing here that technology is in terms of the hardware is likely to converge into some kind of single point but your 13,700 pound scott lumen will have more features enabled within its motor whether that's torque power range whatever and the six grand one will have you know things turned off or it'd be slightly less powerful or have slightly less battery range but all done within the software it wouldn't surprise me at all i mean you see that in automotive yeah so there's there's no reason why it might not happen in bikes or you end up going down the route where you know the bosch cx race motor where limited run you know slightly higher performing models come out but for very limited bikes and you get you know again it's that halo thing once once again yeah, i think it'd be really in sorry tom I would say, or even like put it behind a paywall. Like you can buy the cheaper bike and you can unlock the better performance of the higher end models if it's behind a paywall. Like you can have that upgrade if you pay 500 quid or whatever else. Because again, that's something you see in automotive with some electric cars. It's like, oh yeah, you can have this, but you got to pay for it. Will we see that? Who knows? Be an integrated card reader into your STEM. You have your <laughs> NFC. Or just the app. Yeah, just, yeah, just, just Apple yeah. Pay built I, into, I your, it in the stem. into your bike. I wanted, I wanted, you wanted it in the stem. All right, okay. <laughs> through the, the gap where the handlebars are, yeah. <laughs> but on the point of like a technology convergence, it'd be interesting to see like your TQ bring out their full power motor. So they've got the the mid-power one at the minute um, to see if it is the same size. Or if they have to beef it up, if you know what I mean, mm. if they can keep it within pretty much this, like the same dimensions, and then we start thinking, okay, yeah, maybe these technologies are all going to converge on a, a single size motor, and then battery technology will improve down the years. Um, but if they have to say, oh no, we we have to go for a bigger motor to get more power from it, and then you might always have the, the slight separation. Mm. Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of exciting on the other, you know as well. Um, imagining what what could be, you know, are we going to be on hover bikes? Is it going to be a scene out of Back to the Future? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure we will. No. Long live analog. That's all I say. There you go. Tom Marvin's got his uh, his analog watch. I can't think of anything other and any other analog equipment we have in our lives anymore. Abacus. I've got an abacus. <laughs> Great. So I think that brings it to a close. And thank you ever so much for listening. 
If you agree or disagree with any of our tech trends, and maybe you do or don't like our podcast, please email podcast at bikeradar.com with your thoughts. Thank you ever so much to two Toms and Luke who have joined us for this lovely chat today. It was great talking. Speak soon. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar Podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. 